This is the Constructionist Podcast, where we take ancient stories, the person of Jesus, current events and topics, and help you construct a new Christian worldview that's relevant and loving to those around you. I'm your host, Kevin Bates. I'm a semiotician and community builder looking at the signs of the times to build a better future together. You are tuned in to the Constructionist Podcast, and tonight we are continuing our 10-part now series on the body, Constructing a New You, and tonight's topic is on mental health. So we'll be discussing tonight how mental health affects our body, mind, and spirit, and how the spirit and the mind affect the body when it comes to mental health issues. This is actually going to be a two-part mini-series on mental health, and next week we are inviting a school psychologist. She will be joining us. Her name is Tiffany Russell. She's a licensed school psychologist in a school district here within our local uh, region in Oregon. And as this week we're talking about mental health in general terms, next week we're going to be talking about the very specific topic about children's mental health and early age detection and and treatment options for our children. So the earlier we can detect things and recognize things, the earlier treatment can happen, the better success for their future will be. So tonight is about general mental health concepts and then next week very specific about children's mental health so as the constructionist we desire for you to navigate your life through a framework of what's called a worldview but yet that worldview our hope is relevant and loving to people so as a part of getting our house in order it's very important to work on things do the hard work of self in order to have a better future. And so I want to encourage you to listen to a TED.com video. It's The Benefits of Not Being a Jerk to Yourself by Dan Harris. Go ahead and after this broadcast, you can listen to that. That's a video we've been promoting through this um, whole series. That you can just listen to that and there are much benefits to actually just doing self-work and working on our mind, body, and spirit or the body as we are constructing a new self. So in previous podcasts, we've made mention that if you deconstruct old ideas, that we have to, and we don't, if we don't create a new future or at least a vision for our future, we end up very easily going back to the very things that we tried to reject in the beginning. I wanna be so different that I'm exactly the same if we don't have a new you in front of us. A framework or a new framework of let's say breaking down old habits and toxic behaviors, learning new habits and healthy behaviors to propel us forward. So we need to, we need to construct something, a vision forward in order to grab onto to be a healthier future. So this is our thinking space. We're not psychologists. We're not psychiatrists. We're not professional doctors in certain fields. We are just three people, Jake Flug, Sharia Bodner, and Kevin Bates, just having a discussion about mental illness. So if you've missed some of these broadcasts in previous uh, weeks, we want you to go back and listen to as many as you want, or you can listen to a few. But this is going to be a mini-series, two parts this week and 
next week. So we can we hope that you can join us for at least these two weeks. We did talk about goal setting. We talked about habits and toxic behaviors. We talked about self-concept and beauty. We talked about fitness and nutrition, spiritual practice and meditation, healthy relationships was last week. Now a two-part series on mental health. And then we're finishing out with the often neglected topic of rest. So how can you support us? First, we want you to listen. First, we want you to engage with the program. We want you to listen either tonight in the future or throughout the week. We want you to listen to this multiple times if you have the time to pick up the nuggets that we try to give. Um, but you can financially support us as well by going to resonatelife.org under the Give tab. You can give to us financially. You can interact with us and just be present on the chat box. Um, for the guest chat, you can ask questions and we will try our very best with our very best knowledge, with the tools that we've been given to answer those questions. And if we don't know, we're not going to pretend to know. We're going to tell you we don't know and we will find out and get back to you. So tonight we are talking about mental health. So first of all, how are you both doing? Before we have this subject, we've had a great snow day, which meant we, at least I and some others on the screen, worked. And so how was your day? It was okay. I, I did my taxes. So it wasn't oh. fun, but I feel good about what I accomplished. Good. Do you get money awesome. back this year? Uh, like a hundred bucks. Uh. Yes. Yes. Something you don't owe. Something, yes. I don't. <clears throat> Jake, how are you doing today? Do, doing fine. Snow days mean work days for, for the cafe oh, life. But yes, that's right. It's, yeah. it's, uh, it's all good. It good. was beautiful. It was beautiful snow. We got the most snow in the Portland metro region since what year? 1943 long time ago yeah wow. 60 years 48. ago 70 years ago in yeah one we day. got in one day huh the most in one, in one day. day yeah i'm sorry in one day yeah in one <laughs> snowstorm yeah there was quite a bit of snow out on the ground my daughters made um snowmen and they got out and played mm -hmm. in the snow so it was a lot of fun for for them all right well let's let's start by defining some terms and i think that terms are very important we want to address terms first and so mental health mental health is basically this is a textbook definition but we can expound on these all that we can mental health is a state of successful performance of mental function the brain mental function resulting in productive activities fulfilling relationships with other people and the ability to to adapt to change and to cope with adversity, to cope with adversity. So there's a little bit of resilience when it comes to mental <clears throat> health. Mental illness is the term that's referred to with a collect. It's a collective, a collective, diagnosable mental disorders. So it's a collection of mental disorders. So mental illness is kind of the general term, but those are collective, diagnosable mental disorders. Mental disorders are health conditions that are characterized by alternation alterations 
in thinking mood and behavior or a combination of all three or one or two of those associated with distress and impaired function. So depression, alteration in mood and function, attention deficit, alteration in behavior and thinking and function. So when it comes to mental illness, there is mental disorders that are diagnosable, a collection of those that actually have an impairment on either your thinking or your function or your mood, thinking, mood, or behavior. And then trauma. Trauma is a reaction or a mental reaction to a traumatic event or situation in your life that overwhelms a person in their ability to cope and inhibits them from moving, let's say, forward in a normal, quote unquote, normal manner. So trauma is an event-based situation that overwhelms you. So post-traumatic stress is a diagnosed disorder, PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. And so that affects or overwhelms um, our ability or inhibits us from moving forward with normal manners of life. Uh, resilience, health resilience, mental health resilience refers to the capacity of people to succeed and thrive despite experiencing trauma, neglect, poverty, illness, and such things. So resilient people are able to succeed because they have such things called protective factors. So protective factors then come from many things, but they're qualities that an individual possesses, such as a protective factor against negativity would be optimism. Against low self-worth would be self-confidence. Um, just no faith in the world or yourself with a strong faith. So protective <clears throat> factors come from many times the outside. It builds us up on the inside, loving family, special friends, caring professionals, such things. So that's going to be, uh, we're going to touch on some of the practical things of how to establish those here in our third application part of our discussion. And then recovery. Recovery is the process of change when a person improves their health and wellness direction of life, striving to reach their full potential in different dimensions. So you can be in recovery, not just for drug and alcohol recovery, but for overeating recovery, for any type of addiction, yes, but also recovery from health, physical or emotional, recovery in your home to establish, let's say you come from a traumatic home, to go into recovery, to establish a stable and safe place to live, to reestablish purpose. If you've lost your sense of purpose, you can go into recovery and also relationships. So there are different recovery support components that we can talk about in the application. And there's different types of groups that you can join to enter into recovery. All right. So those are some definitions before we get started with our full discussion. Something that I want to address right out of the gate here is this. I am a teaching pastor, a preacher, a senior pastor of a congregation. And so I am a professional in that realm. And this is what I know about the profession that I 
engage in and also the communities in which I lead, but also colleagues, what they have done and what other colleagues have done in the history of me being a preacher and that I have witnessed myself. The church is not done. Preachers and teachers and leadership of churches, they have not done a good job in addressing and promoting professional mental health over just my lifetime in ministry, in the church. And so there's a theological practice out there that would say that mental illness either is A, made up, B, just totally like a perception that you have that's not a real perception, demon possession or oppression. So pick something from the outside like, a, like you are a victim of the devil. And so therefore you need demonic release and that 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 is a theology basically in the church so depression is is basically they would say is a result of not having the fullness of christ in you um this theology i would say is absolutely wrong uh it is unhealthy it's not biblical it's not something that i or this group will ever ever you will see us promote we promote and believe that mental illness in all forms is real. It's not fake. It's not demon possession or oppression. It's very real. It's, as you see some statistics coming up, it's very, I would say, uh, normal. It's very a part of our society. It is a part of our human being. And so mental illness, I believe, needs to be accepted alongside our community as a reality. And so people um, need to seek if they perceive they have a mental illness or a precursor to mental illness. They need to seek professional help from a licensed professional counselor, not a counselor that just you can go to your faith community and go see a faith healer or some quasi faith type counselor no a professional counselor spiritual directors are for spiritual things for spiritual direction counselors are for counseling for therapy for mental illness people that have licensed professional counseling licensure lpc licensure Licensed marriage, family, therapist, licensure, uh, a licensed social worker, licensure. So people who have licensure, specific license for therapy and counseling. And if your counselor or if your perceived counselor does not have a license, I just want to encourage each one of you to reconsider that engagement of relationship for your therapy. If you're going to that person for therapy, reconsider that person and find a licensed therapist, a licensed professional therapist. Please consider somebody that is trained in the field. And so this mental illness topic, if you are dealing with mental illness, it is not a faith issue. It is a mental issue. And so I want to be very clear about that and all of that before we get started, that that is who we are foundationally, really, as the three of us as the constructionists. So mental health includes our emotional, psychological, and social well-being. It's like a three 
part stool that we have in our lives. It affects how we think, we feel, and we act. It also helps determine how we handle stress, how we relate to others, how we make healthy choices. Mental health is important at every stage of, of life. And so from childhood to adolescence through adulthood, we, we can change in our mental health. It does change and can change over time, depending on many factors. So let's say you are put under a new sense of stress or a new season of stress where that just exceeds your resources, um, your coping abilities. You go beyond your coping abilities. Your mental health can be affected just in the seasons of, of life. Different impacts on your life. For those that have ever been pregnant that have a child, it is very common then post birth of the child to go through a season of a depression or a season of just mental illness for that season. So seasons can change in our lives that can be a catalyst for a form of mental illness. So my example there is maybe going beyond coping uh, abilities. There is no shame behind that. There is no uh, evil spirit behind that. There is no or, uh, uh, oppression or um, invasion by the devil in your life. It is normal. And I wish that we could look at mental illness more as just alongside of who we are learning to navigate through different seasons and different mental health issues that we have. So mental illness is amongst the most common health conditions in the United States. If you just look at the statistics out there, one in five Americans will experience a mental illness in a given year. One in five children, either currently or at some point during their life, have had a serious debilitating mental illness. One in 25 Americans live with a serious mental illness, such as schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, or a major depression. So mental illness is common. Mental illness is a part of our culture. And the beauty behind this topic, my hope is that we would speak about it in such a way that would motivate us to seek the resources we need to grow through the seasons and the challenges and the illnesses that we have as we just our experiences change, our age changes, or our situations change. So there's no single cause to mental illness. There's no single reason. There's a number of factors that might contribute to it. Maybe there's a handful of factors that you or your counselor, your licensed professional counselor can identify with you uh, that can contribute to the risk of mental illness. And so we're going to talk about some of those things in the application portions and very practical things for resilience, but maybe adverse life experiences. So just trauma or, or history of abuse, rather child abuse, sexual assault, witnessing violence and such things. Those things uh, can contribute. There's factors there that contribute to the risk of mental illness. Uh, experiencing ongoing chronic medical conditions, uh, cancer or 
uh, heart disease or diabetes or maybe just some physical ailments or maybe the 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 maybe maybe your physical abilities all of a sudden change you're not able to walk anymore you're not able to talk anymore maybe you've experienced a stroke or something like that where your actual your your physical body changes um that can be a risk of that can be a precursor to the risk of mental illness just because of the change biological factors chemical imbalances the use of substances can uh, uh, accelerate the risk of mental illness so one thing that i just want to be as i close this introduction one thing that i want to be very uh careful of and clear in is there's a challenge to mental illness actually in our culture not only is there a challenge to mental illness in our in our faith communities and what leaderships of churches have done to the idea of mental illness or professional help or the use of antidepressant uh medications and such um if you're on an antidepressant uh, medication and if you hear something like from a faith leader you don't need that anymore you can get off of that drop your pills please do not do that that faith community leader does not know what they're talking about you need to walk alongside somebody that's professional that's because mental illness the reason why these things are said or our culture has such a challenge, or our faith community has such challenge, is that can be summed up in one word, and that one word is stigma. Mental illness is in stigma only reserved for that group of people. Whoever that group of people that we point the finger at, that's who the mental illness is for. I'm not mentally ill. They're mentally ill, whoever they are. So, so mental illness in our culture has a stigma. And stigma can be, all stigmas can be described with three words. And the first word is stereotypes. The ideas that we have around mental illness, the stereotypes that we have, that leads to prejudices or beliefs against so we have beliefs against those that are mentally or struggling through mental illness, which leads to discrimination. So we have these ideas about mental illness because we don't understand it. We have prejudices about mental illness because we believe something about it. And then we take action against it in discrimination. So that's what stigma is. And stigma has a lot of fear embedded within it. And because we all have developed over a long period of time a stigma about certain things like mental illness. We as people, when we are struggling, we are afraid to reveal that struggle to others. And that vulnerability that we might have is created many times by this idea of stigma. So we have real fear behind a real fear behind the uh, the mental illness potentials that we have in our lives, in our cultures, in our families. It can be a family thing where families won't accept it. 
It can be a friend thing where your friends don't accept it. It can be a faith community thing. No matter how healthy you think your family, your friends, or your faith community is, if they have a stigma about mental illness, that means that the family, the friends, and the faith community do not have a proper relationship with mental illness. They're not looking at it as a real factor. They're not looking at it as a reality. So let's say in a stereotype with mental illness, somebody that has mental health challenges, a lot of times we think we, meaning our culture and our faith communities, a lot of times we think it's incapable, you're incapable, you're fragile, you're dangerous, you're never gonna recover. So there's lots of stigma or, or, or stereotype ideas behind uh, mental illness. And then we have a prejudice. We believe that people are less than. If you struggle with depression, you're less than. If you struggle with some other form of mental illness, OCD, you have a problem, you're less than. And every problem that we can label another person with means that they're just less than. And then discrimination, there's social discrimination where you don't wanna live next door to somebody that has, that's mentally ill. You don't wanna work with somebody that's mentally ill. You don't wanna marry into that kind of family because of course those genes are gonna be passed on to your children mental ill. So we have these discriminatory practices that uh, that we look at somebody and go, oh, you struggle with depression? Really? Are you able to work? Are you able to get out of bed? Are you able to leave the front door? Do, do you struggle crossing the welcome mat, leaving your house? I mean, we all have these like discriminatory even words or thoughts about it. But then there's structural. There's actually structural discrimination when it comes to uh, mental illness. So organizationally, governmentally, institutionally, limits access, limits acceptance, limits availability to resources that, that we need. So let's say at your job, you all of a sudden just start suffering from mental illness. There's a depression. Maybe your work is so stressful that all of a sudden you don't have the coping mechanisms your resources are depleted, the bucket is dry, and you begin to go through a deeper sense of depression. Does your environment that you work in, do they accept that? Do they have the resources? They have a gym on campus. Do they have resources for you to take care of your mental health on campus, or at least to refer you in a very acceptable, accepting way to resources around you? So my hope tonight is this. My hope is that by just having a conversation about mental health and mental illness, kind of two subjects, right, uh, in, in this discussion, my hope is that this is just one more step, might be a micro step, but one more step in reducing our stigma of mental illness that we, if we reduce our stigma of mental illness, that we then would be on the road to becoming more mentally healthy ourselves. Because I think that if we really struggle with mental illness or stigma of mental illness, we definitely run the risk of actually not recognizing that in ourselves. So with that in mind, that's our topic for tonight. We have three different sections, the theology, the science and the practice of mental health. 
And so Shreya's first up, she's going to talk about the theology of mental health. Can I, can I butt in real fast, Kevin? I think it's a great intro. Yeah. I just wanted to add one thing to it. Um, Please. We talk about Please. mental illness, and we also need to talk about neurodivergence and that that is not mental illness. And so mm -hmm. we're right. talking about autism, right. talking about dyslexia, ADHD, stuff of those nature. That is not mental illness, that we're talking about something else when we say that specific term. Um, and those ideas do not fall in that template. So in my research for this for tonight, and we need to ask a professional about this, that mental illness can a symptom of mental illness can be attention deficit. So I think I'd like to ask a professional that like is is ADHD or ADD. I know that the two terms are interchangeable in our culture, but I know that ADD is the old term and ADHD is the more acceptable common term. Um, it would be really interesting to ask maybe Tiffany next week if ADHD can be a reflection or a a symptom of mental illness oh, yeah. or is it just adhd alongside mental illness good thought yes not that yes it's a good I... thought it's like yes i'd like to ask <laughs> i'll be so right Shreya. there i'm writing down a question to ask tiffany next week give me two okay seconds. good Okay, so I'm going to talk about um, the theology of mental health, um, and I kind of looked at this in two sections. Um, so I want to talk about what the Bible says about mental health, um, and I also want to talk a little bit about what the church has said about mental health, and I know Kevin touched on that a little bit. Um, what I have is a little bit different. So with the Bible, um, there's been a tendency in the evangelical church to treat the Bible like it's an answer book. Uh, many of us who are raised in the Christian tradition or have been here for a long time were taught this. And a lot of Bibles will include a topical index at the end. So you get things like verses to read when you're feeling sad, verses to read when you're feeling joyful, verses for when you're feeling lonely. Um, and the thing is, all of these verses are pulled out of context when they're used that way. Um, yeah. So for example, if you're struggling with anxiety and you look up in your topical index, anxiety, and it tells you to read Philippians 4, 6, it says, don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. But Paul isn't likely talking about anxiety as defined by the DSM-5. Um, and yes. this is just one verse in the context of other verses. So right before this verse, Paul is encouraging his listeners to help two other members of the church to get along. Right after this verse, he's thanking his listeners for supporting him. And he's talking to a group of people who are facing the very real possibility of being imprisoned or killed by the Roman Empire. So there's a good chance that their anxiety looks a little bit different than ours does today. Another example that gets used a lot is the Psalms. Um, they're often used as the answers to our emotions. 
And so David is the writer of a lot of the Psalms. And I don't think David's songwriting process was to be like, I'm going to teach people how to feel this feeling in a godly way, right? Like he had a feeling and he sang about it. So while we can find solidarity in the Psalms, we can find a sense of being understood in the Psalms. I think it's a little bit misguided to consider them instructive unless they say that they are for the purpose of instruction, which some do. Um, so when you get formats that encourage you to express your emotions by first telling God why you're upset, then list the things that God has done for us in the past, and then we give thanks for what God has done in the past, and then we end on hope that God will help us again. Um, like that format can be useful sometimes, but mm. sometimes our emotions don't fit the prescribed format, and it's counterproductive to try and make them fit. Um, I think the authors and the compilers of the Bible were not trying to answer the question, what does God want for my mental health? I think they were more focused on questions like, what is God like? How do I relate to God? So I think we're missing the point if we assume that the Bible is an authority on mental health. That said, um, when it comes to those questions of what God is like and how we relate to God, I do think we see that God wants human and non-human life to flourish. This means that God does care about our mental health and wants us to be healthy. To me, the best picture in the text of this is the Sabbath, um, all of them. So there's the weekly Sabbath, there's the seventh year letting the land rest Sabbath, and then the year of Jubilee. Um, so we know of the Sabbath day as a day of rest, and we know that rest is good for our mental health. In the book, Sabbath as Resistance, Walter Brueggemann talks about Sabbath as a way of returning to ourselves. So when we're caught up in capitalism and the need to feel productive all the time, as many of us do, it nurtures a sense of anxiety in us that nothing is ever enough. And in that anxious state, we become disconnected from ourselves and from our needs. So a weekly Sabbath is an invitation to be our whole selves without needing to keep the world spinning. And then there's letting the land rest every seven years. This allows the soil to recover, supporting non-human life, which then goes on to support human life over the following six years. And then finally, the year of Jubilee. Um, I think most of us are familiar with financial stress and or debt. So with the year of Jubilee, every 50th year, debts were to be forgiven and land returned to its original owner. The idea was to prevent anyone from becoming destitute and to keep them out of a cycle of poverty. So knowing that your debts will be forgiven and that your family will be provided for helps to ease anxiety. I think that these three Sabbath practices give us a picture of shalom, of harmony, and of wholeness that includes our mental health. We also see Jesus taking some time by himself in lonely places to pray. Um, but for reasons we'll talk about in a minute, I would maybe emphasize the part where Jesus is taking time by himself over the prayer part. Um, so that's what I see in the text regarding mental health. Um, do you want to take a moment to talk about that or do you want to go straight into the church? Yes, I just want to take a moment uh, because you said something at the very beginning that is super interesting. And I want to just emphasize something that you were alluding to. Um, 
okay. that I just want to state it in like a, maybe a different way. Because um, you said it. Well, no, you were very plain. Uh, and it doesn't need to be restated, I guess, just re-emphasized. Um, uh, the Bible is not an authority on science. Mm -hmm. And that's something that we really need to wrap our heads around. The Bible, we need to make the Bible do what the Bible was meant to do. Yep. And, that's, and that's not what the Bible was meant to do. The Bible was never to be an authority on science. And the Bible was never to be an authority on psychology. I believe as Christians with the Bible that we can walk alongside our mental health and psychology and also walk alongside uh, uh, science very closely. And we don't have to reject one for the other or the other one for the other. We don't have to reject either one. We can walk alongside it. And many things marry each other. Um, that we can see, but the Bible was never meant to be an authority on psychology. And so making the Bible do what the Bible was not meant to do. I actually think that's a Peter Enns quote that making the it Bible do. Probably is. Yeah. Making the Bible do what the Bible was meant to do and not what it wasn't meant to do. And so I think the Bible was meant in a lot of ways, like you've taught me, Sharia, the Bible was meant for rhythm and practice, that there's a rhythm to these things. So the year of Jubilee was every 50 years. You know, the seven days of creation is like that rhythm mm -hmm. reset. So uh, so it's always a rhythm practice. So, yeah. That's all I had to say about just reemphasizing that. Yeah. Okay. So what, do you, what do you think, what do you think uh, about when we... I mean, do you think that it's toxic? Do you think it's abusive when we say, do not fear? Um, the Bible says that the fear comes from the devil. What do we Yeah, I wrote that. I wrote that in my other notes, actually. <laughs> um, Is that where like, we're headed? <laughs> no, but that's why I wrote it in my other notes. Um, like, there's something in Christian circles where it's like, do not fear is the number one command in the Bible. Like it shows up 365 times, one for every day to tell us not to be afraid. Right. Yeah. Um, I think when God via the Bible says, don't be afraid. It's not saying it's a sin to be afraid. It's saying I'm with you. Like it's meant as a message of comfort. Um, and I do think the church has turned it into don't feel your feelings, which, yeah, I would say is toxic. Well, it's it's almost like as we're headed into this church discussion, since, you know, you and I and Jake have like doctorate degrees in church. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think that I think that the church has become very propositional. Like mm -hmm. if you do this, you get this. If you yeah. believe in Jesus, then you get this, or you believe in, you know, like this practice, right. then you get something. Um, but also equational, like it's very equational. Is that a word, equational? It's very equation-based, yeah. where A plus B equals C. It's just systematic yeah. is probably what you would call it. Just, yeah, systematic. It's very just... Every time. Yeah, and like that equation, A plus B equals C, that system is like indestructible and can be applied to anything that's what Everything. we think yeah 
and everything. So mm-hmm. it's just not true. Um, something I see that we use yeah. with scripture itself, and it may be in your church section as well, Shreya, is that um, we try to make today's concepts apply mm-hmm. the things in the yeah. past. And you kind of brush that. Um, right. The big word is called anachronism. And so we take mm-hmm. we take today's concepts like I'm going to Enneagram Paul. Okay. Um, I'm going to try to figure out how to tell someone not to be depressed because it says be still in Psalms. Right. That's called anachronism that we're placing today's today's issues and topics on a very yesterworld idea. Mm-hmm. Um, I think what we, we do see a lot of mental illness in, in scripture. Um, I think Jesus was mentally ill for quite a while, especially in the garden scene. We can see Jesus mm-hmm. definitely being mentally ill and that's okay. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that Obviously. there's moments of of real fear and real anger and real like despondence, like mental despondence, very, very uh, disassociation behaviors um, that you can see in scripture that people are enduring, whether that just be for that moment or whether that just be something that they've dealt with or had to live with for a very long time, we don't know. Uh, we, like mm-hmm. to, we like to say like what Paul's thorn in his flesh was. Right. Right. There's so many conjectures of what that is. Yeah. I mean, heck, if mm-hmm. I went through what Paul went through, I'd be depressed. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I probably have a chronic depression. Um, based on just his story, so we could even say, well, Timothy struggles with anxiety because of Paul tells him to drink wine. Right. <laughs> right. There's so many guesses, and but that that again is like, it's like making the Bible do what the Bible wasn't meant to do. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, let's talk about that church. Yeah. Let's rail on so it. Think... Okay. <laughs> um. I think that for at least the last 40 or 50 years, um, the church has approached the Bible like an answer book. Um, So we take those verses that kind of mention the emotion that we're feeling out of context and treat it like it's an answer. So if we go back to Philippians 4, 6, again, it says, don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. If we take this verse as a solution to our anxiety, it tells us to stop feeling anxious and pray. I have found that that doesn't tend to make my anxiety go away. Right. (laughs) You know, prayer might help me feel supported, um, but the anxiety is still there. I think some of us might be able to bury the anxiety so we don't have to feel it, while others of us kind of get stuck feeling the anxiety and can't turn it off. But either way, we're ignoring the need that's underneath of the anxiety. Um, So that never gets addressed. And we end up using God as a way of bypassing our mental health. I've definitely seen a trend in church to um, trash talk therapy and or self-help. 
um, or at least to consider it less beneficial than just going to God and reading your Bible. And I think that is starting to change, um, but there's still some entrenched thinking about how God is the best thing for your mental health. Like I've been in conversations with Christians who criticize self-help as spirituality, um, as though it's watering down the gospel. But I think about the call to love people like Jesus and to provide for their needs or about salvation as liberation. Mm -hmm. And I think self-help therapy working on our mental health is absolutely a Christian spiritual practice. We have a hard time loving people well when we aren't able to love ourselves or take care of ourselves. And reading your Bible can be a good thing, but it's not a replacement for therapy or for whatever doing the work looks like for you. Can I be a little bit incendiary? Please, yes. Okay. Scorched My very skeptical Shreya. side. Scorched okay. Her. Yeah. Sure. Even Paige is getting up for this one. Yep. <laughs> She's ready. My very skeptical side thinks that many church institutions benefit from their congregants remaining unhealthy because it means the church can keep offering itself as the solution. Oh, that wasn't painful. That was true. <laughs> wow. Spoken like a prophet of Old Testament right there. Wow, you're right. Well, I think that, I mean, if I was vulnerable and honest, I've been a part of that. I mean, mm -hmm. you can't be a you can't be a preacher for 25 years and not be that what you just said that if we preach a certain way or we uh speak a certain way about certain topics keeping our congregants close mm -hmm. right and that happens in all ways like not just with topics of mental illness but keeping our congregants close with just the subject of shame yeah yeah I think that's that's a learned behavior of of going back to. That's what they were taught. That's what right. That's what they said that they should be able to do. That if you're mm -hmm. doing a good job, that your parishioners or whoever they may be, won't be needing the help. Right. That is reflected on your performance. Yeah. So if I pray and have faith, I will be healed. I think that I think that there's a big difference. Somebody somebody taught me once that the difference between Buddhism and Christianity is in Christianity we are asking to be filled and in Buddhism we are asking to be emptied. And in most therapy that I've ever done and, and counseling that I've ever participated in as a, as a client, as, a, as not as the, the person leading it, but the person that's subjected to it, I, I have found more usefulness behind emptying myself versus filling myself. And this is why many therapists, counselors, and such practitioners will, will tell you 
to do mindfulness um, mm -hmm. as a rhythmic practice to help um, almost like salve the mind where our minds are are jumping with anxiety and they say well practice mindfulness um, on a daily basis and the idea of mindfulness is to empty your mind to stop thinking about or practice stop thinking about the things that we're thinking about and actually to go through that 10 minute or five minute or three minute um head space exercise that not necessarily the app but just the head space exercise to empty our our minds because most of our training with prayer has been to uh, our prayers are full of anxious statements. Mm -hmm. Our yeah. prayers are full of anxiety. Our prayers are full of gimme, gimme, or take this from me. And it's a focus on not emptying the mind. It's a focus on the actual like issue. So, so even the way that we've been trained to pray really does not produce much psychological evidence that is grounded that that actually does anything for our mental health but mindfulness it's not supposed to do anything for us right what but it's not supposed to do anything for us right well i, I would say that spiritual practice more like some of the ancients um some of the ancient spiritual practices definitely were more that was uh, tongue in more, cheek by the way Oh, I know, I know. Was more emptying your mind, uh, become at one with like your mind or the practice. I think that we used to um, have more healthy practices, but now our, our prayer life is so transactional. I'll do this for you, God. I'll make you a deal, right? You take this from me and I'll do this for you. Um, it's very transactional, actually, uh, that, that it creates even more of a mentally unhealthy environment in which to so live. Prayer, meditation sh should be yeah. a... Wow, I lost, lost my train of thought. Should be a, a detachment from the limbic system. Right where all we are doing is just speaking out of that the entire time we're speaking out of mm -hmm. anxiety out of that fear out of that and so when we're afraid we're driven to pray but i think prayer was more designed a long time ago i think before even christianity was a thing before long before that prayer was a detachment from the anxiety of having to sustain your own life. Mm. I think that kind of brings church... us back around to Sabbath. Oh yeah. Totally. Yeah. I think and then going into Sabbath, Sabbath also an emptying mm -hmm. of mm -hmm. rest. And rest is a release of the anxiety of production. Right. Where if you if you look at how people are trained to pray and i'll say trained it it is an object of production mm -hmm. there's there's metrics there's there's methods there's all this stuff except just being 
Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think in the recent, uh, recent, now I'm not going to crap on anybody's sacred space. Okay. Although we do have to be very careful when we, are you, are you crapping next to it? I might be crapping next to it and you might smell it. <laughs> so, so there's been a lot of talk on social, on social media about revival mm -hmm. and that revival is happening in a certain place, right? Mm -hmm. So then it's happening over here and it's happening over there and it's happening in this state and this college and this place that revival is, is, is happening. Um, I would say that revival is reviving or accelerating, accentuating the values that are embedded inside of you already. This is why you see what's happening on social media happen. When it comes to the state of the church and what we actually need as the church is prophetic imaginatory renewal that we need the prophetic imagination. We need new something. We don't need something revived. We need something new. Yeah, and not, not, re, not, I like, I think he, I think he used renewal. Uh, I don't think he meant that. Word. No, I didn't mean that. We need the prophetic imagination where we need something new, new, not renewal, uh, versus definitely new, new. Yeah. Um, and we need, we need that fresh voice and like, let's press the stop button and not a do over. Let's just now press the start button and start something really new. Mm -hmm. Um, what we've done in the past, you're right, Sharia, 100% is we've created toxic environments, abusive environments to perpetuate abuse it keeps us okay. held in a pattern it keeps us held in a in a mentally ill this is why the church has been accused of actually being mentally ill that the church in and of itself that if you go to church you're mentally ill so this is why the church has been accused because of what shrey is saying is leadership of churches have held congregants close that that we are always needed that the person um, will you never save, grow up. Savior complex. Yeah, yeah, but definitely. Yeah. Mm. That is an accusation of the church that I don't think is not, it's not unfounded. It's very founded. And mm -hmm. we need to take heed to what you're saying and not just uh, blow it off as, as, you know, not, not real. It is definitely founded. Well, let's platform from mm -hmm. there. Shrey, do you have any other thoughts on the theology of mental health? Nope. That's heavy, heavy, heavy stuff. So let's quickly go over a quick science lesson of mental health because we want to make sure that we get to the practice of mental health. Mental health, uh, I believe, and science tells us is a critical component of overall well-being. It's something uh, that we need to consider in our health practices and what we do um, as, as people. Yet mental health is complex 
And it's also one of the most misunderstood and least understood aspects of human health. So even within the discipline of the mental health industry, that there is misunderstanding and also um, non-understanding aspects of mental health. So it's complex, but I believe despite the complexity of it, researchers are making much, much progress and significant strides in understanding the science behind uh, mental health. And so all the time, they're revolutionizing, they're offering new insights and advances that we didn't have 20 years ago or even 10 or five years ago, that uh, there's a different way to think about um, just how to treat conditions or how to treat um, even the risk of conditions. So I would say that um, the exciting uh, the exciting discipline is neurobiology and and the neurobiology uh, is the study of the brain. And so that has made huge advancements. There's people like Andrew Huberman and, and such that that are neurobiologists that are making huge advancements to mapping brain function and and there are people that actually are imaging uh, the brain and how new treatments and new therapies, are targeting specific brain regions and and with specific uh, uh, well specific brain regions and neurotransmitters with specific medications uh, to treat such things like uh, depression and anxiety and and very specifically like a PTSD. Um, another thing that is advancing is learning the environmental factors, how environmental factors, affect our genetic or gene expression. And so there could be some environmental factors also that you are and we are dealing with that are actually changing the way that our genes are or the DNA inside of our bodies that can have long lasting effects on mental health. So we have brain mapping and imaging, direct targeting of certain functions or certain areas of the brain and also environmental factors, how those are affecting uh, our brain. You cannot tell me that in the last hundred years, just with advancement, we're looking at screens. We, our entire environment is changing. We have, um, we have global climate change, all the factors that we're dealing with just in environment and also just personal practice and the things that we are engaged in on a regular basis is going to affect, at least give us the risk of some kind of changing mental uh, health. So there's, there's lots of new technology and also new treatments out there and therapies that are, are very exciting when it comes to uh, mental health. Again, though, it's stigma that holds a lot of things back. So it's our view of mental health, whether we will engage in the therapies, whether we will actually engage in the practice, a lot of times holds us back from becoming and understanding our my own conditions, but also other people's conditions as well. And so we need to prioritize, I think, in our, our groups and faith communities and friend groups and families I prioritize learning about and actually studying and thinking about mental health in our circles. Uh, I would say that one of the 
um, pinpoint research components that science has just really nailed is the imbalance of the imbalance of is my sound off again Jake There we go. Is that better? Perfect. Thank you. My sound is having a little bit of issue uh, tonight. But science has really nailed the imbalance of chemicals within the brain or neurochemicals. And neurochemicals are the chemical messengers, right, that carry boost and balance signals between neurons, nerve cells, and other cells in our body and they can have a wide effect on our physical and psychological function. So if imbalance occurs within our neurochemicals, the brain can't communicate properly, the brain can't communicate effectively, and that can inhibit our health or our healthy and safe responses to self and others when we endure a stimuli. So whatever that stimulus is, whether that be a trauma, whether that be a, 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 a scare, you're scared, or, or whether that be just a new environment that we're dealing with, that can create, an, that actually, uh, the imbalance of neurochemicals can inhibit our healthy and safe responses to such things. So one of those neurochemicals is what we've, a common one is adrenaline. And adrenaline is a hormone that basically makes your muscles contract. It makes, it regulates your heart, heart rate, uh, your blood pressure, but it also triggers our stress response and it's called our fight and flight response uh, hormone. So too much of this hormone can lead to chronic stress or difficulty in concentration or dizziness or fatigue or anxiety and eventually into an anxiety disorder. So an imbalance of adrenaline in our bodies can affect our mental health. Dopamine, maybe you've heard of dopamine. Dopamine is a neurotransmitter that is our reward center of our brain. It enables us to see rewards and go after them. So, oh, the shiny thing is over there and I need to run over there and get it and win that thing. So that, that dopamine seems, well, that's just kind of seems fickle, but it actually, it helps regulate emotional response when we are enduring some kind of stimulus. So too little of this may be related to addictive behavior. Too little of this can be related to cravings and compulsions and and depression and, and really loss of motor control if you don't have enough dopamine. Too much of this can be related to uh, disorders and mood swings and psychoses and uh, symptoms often related to schizophrenia. So dopamine and adrenaline, maybe you've heard of those two, but, but norepinephrine, kind of maybe a, just a harder word, but maybe not as popular is that is that hormone that helps mobilize the brain and body into action. So it affects blood flow, it affects uh, alertness, it affects heart rate and, and reaction time with our, our body. So too little of norepinephrine 
can be related to lack of energy, lack of focus, uh, symptoms common related to depression and and attention disorders. And so norepinephrine, an imbalance of that or too little of that, too much of that can be lead to a hyperactive response under stimuli or stress response or anxiety. But then the most common one that's talked about a lot with depression is serotonin. And serotonin is the, is the neurotransmitter that helps regulate mood. It helps regu regulate social behaviors, appetite and digestion. Serotonin regulates that sleep and memory, sexual desire and function. So all those are definitely related to the balance of serotonin in our bodies. So too little of this neurotransmitter can be related to high stress. Uh, too much can be related to anxiety or anxiety disorders, depression, obsess obsessive actions and thoughts, um, maybe even an obsessive compulsive OCD disorder. So they've come out and really honed in on new, uh, what they call SSRIs. And an SSRI is a medication called a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor. So that's basically in the description of the name. And so it, it keeps you from uptaking or using serotonin. So it's an antidepressant medication prescribed to treat depression. And in, in severe cases of depression, it's used along with uh, cognitive behavioral, such things as cognitive behavioral therapy, going to a therapist. And I would recommend that uh, for anyone that that finds themselves a need to be on a medication is to definitely uh, definitely see a cognitive behavioral therapist or a talking therapy, talking therapy and such things like that. To, to walk alongside a therapist uh, when you are um, at least on a regular or semi-regular basis if you find the need that you are on a a serotonin reuptake inhibitor. So basically SSRIs uh, stop or delay the body from absorbing or reabsorbing uh, the substance serotonin. So there is in the science of the psycho psychology, brain, neurobiology, science, there is a lot of advancement, especially in the last really 20 years, I would say, a lot of advancement when it comes to um, mental health and mental illness and there are medications very specific targeted for specific disorders and specific illnesses and you might find great success i know friends personally i have family members personally that are on medications that were literally i would say totally missing the mark in life they weren't able to function they weren't able to turn in homework. They weren't able to complete projects. They weren't able to just really function on a regular basis. But through SSRIs and some other medications, they're able to function and really hit marks. And they're finding great success in their life today that they weren't five years ago. So I want you to all consider uh, something like that along with a therapist, a licensed professional counselor. Jake, talk some application to me, to us. <laughs>
I muted. I'm sorry. I've been muting myself in between, so forgive me for that, which makes a lot more sense now. Um, to start out, what I want to share with application is more about just things to get um, you to, to research, to dig in, to figure out what will work for you. Um, it's not prescriptive. It's not, this is how you, these are the eight steps to not be a ment more mentally resilient person. Although I believe that if you do do these things that you have the greater potential of being more mentally resilient. Um, everything I'm going to talk about tonight um, here in this section is very researched out by people much smarter than I am. Um, and it comes from a few different people that, that I respect and listen to and, and definitely um, lots of books and everything else that I definitely can recommend if anyone wants that information later. So there are basically nine steps that I want to give everyone tonight of how to be a more mentally resilient person. And the first with all things is sleep. There's no greater thing that we can do for our bodies, for our minds, for our souls, spirits, guts, um, everything in our life, even other people, is to get adequate and good sleep. And adequate and good sleep is a process called sleep hygiene. And sleep hygiene is having a good bedtime routine that you follow. It's having your room set at a comfortable temperature that encourages sleep. Just a hint, that's not very warm. Um, darkness, having your room be dark and without other artificial lights. Either blue light glasses, um, they're finding don't work. And so keeping your eyes away from screens, especially right before you're going to bed, is a great idea for sleep hygiene. And we're all looking at this screen right now at 9.15 at night. So none of us mm -hmm. are playing that game well. <laughs> um, even the idea of like having a sound machine in your room so that the noises in your house, on the street, other things are, are, are kind of drone away so that you are just sleeping. Mm -hmm. I think sleep is the first thing to always go in stress, anxiety, um, and good quality sleep. I mean, you might be sleeping for long enough. Mm. You might think that you're doing a really great job sleeping, but there's other metrics out there to track how well you're sleeping actually. And to dig into that, um, I wear something on my wrist that tracks my sleep. And so I'm able to see those diagnostics every morning I wake up. That might cause more anxiety than good. I'm not sure yet. Um, but yeah, um, having a can good I butt sleep in, Can I butt in there Please. just a little bit? I want, I want everyone to butt in as, as much as possible. So with sleep, what I have found in my life, just to give my practice out, is I sleep with a sound machine. And a sound For machine is just a month. Uh, Longer than that now, I believe. It's been a longer than a month. Yeah. Like so, a major change, right? So I made a major change in my sleep because I wasn't sleeping well and it was causing a lot of challenges for me. And, uh, and so I got into a routine to bed earlier, not eating fats late at night, like nuts and going for chocolate and 
ice yeah. cream and all the things that we like to eat late at night that Buttery affect popcorn. our guts. Yeah, peanut butter and jelly sandwich at midnight. Mm. So so trying Taco not Bell. to eat. Yeah, late at night. Um, and then uh, going to bed earlier. That just, you know, seems practical. Um, but then sleeping with actually a sleep machine that makes a white noise or that a machine, ocean yeah. noise. You can use your phone or whatever to create a sleep environment that kind of knocks out some noise around you. Um but one thing that I went in for is I went in for a sleep apnea test. And many people struggle with sleep apnea. It's not necessarily based on how much weight you're carrying. It's not necessarily based on anything really sometimes physical. Sometimes it's neurobiological. Um, I have a family member that has a neuro-styled sleep apnea. His brain tells him to stop breathing so that's that's when it gets quite scary so mm -hmm. sleep apnea is common you go in for mm -hmm. a test they fit you with a, a cpap machine if you're a um a, at at risk or above a mild form like me i have a mild form of sleep apnea so i haven't gotten it yet but i'm looking forward to my mouth device that I stick in my mouth and it's going to move my jaw. I've already been fitted for it and everything, but I've noticed that sleep apnea has affected my sleep greatly. That's mm -hmm. when we stop breathing at night and mm -hmm. it does affect There's anxiety how... and the stress and everything else on your body. Yeah. So yeah. I want to encourage that for our well-being, but also our mental health yeah. too in the long term. I think the biggest thing with sleep is to, to definitely research sleep hygiene. Yeah. And then to get diagnostics around your sleep so you know how well you're sleeping. Uh, all Everyone's iPhone can be a sleep diagnostic. For, uh, there's apps on there. Some are free, some are paid for that you can at least somewhat tell what's going on. But I think about like Oliver and trying to get Oliver to go to bed. There is a definite routine that we have to go through in order for him to go to bed. Bath time. TV time or books, hopefully books. TV is not the best, but sometimes it happens. More than often, it doesn't. Um, and then moving on to, does he need more food? Does he need water? Where is he at uh, biologically with his with his food? And then slowly ease him into bed, calm, peaceful, quiet. As adults, we are no different than that. That sleep is is the utmost importance. And it is a thing that can change our mental capacity, mental resilience the most. So definitely sleep. Um, so the second thing is exercise or movement. Every day, just move. Doesn't matter if you're hitting it super hard. Doesn't matter if if you are running a marathon or not. But really trying to move every day. Just do one thing. Just walk into the door of your gym. Just walk around your block. Just do something for your health every day that is movement-based. And that will help you sleep better at night, but also releases endorphins into your bloodstream, which goes into, um, raises your dopamine. And so you will be a happier person at that point as well when you exercise. Any thoughts about that one? 
exercising late at night is not good for sleep. So if you're attempting to get a good night's sleep and you're working out at 10 o'clock at a 24-hour gym, that might be the only time, and that's hard, and I understand that difficulty, uh, yet just know that 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 amount of, in men, like that amount of testosterone usage and release is going to be very difficult to sleep right afterwards. Yeah, and I think uh, something we miss with sleep as well, we were not designed as nocturnal animals. And so, yeah, we're very diurnal. Yes, definitely. And so as much as you're able to be on a regular rhythm with the sun in your sleep pattern, Mm -hmm. uh, when, when I travel, I'm on the equator. That is when I sleep the very best. And it is odd. Sun goes down at eight and it comes up at eight. Right. And so, as a human, like we were designed to be in that environment. And so your sleep definitely scores. Uh, exercise, nutrition, and hydration. What you take into your body directly reflects how well your mental resiliency and your mental health is. And so if you're eating good and healthy and whole foods, mm-hmm. your potential to have greater mental resiliency and greater mental health um, will be there. Um, if you're hydrating yourself and you can go back and listen to our podcasts, two of them actually, um, in this section about diet, nutrition, and exercise, we didn't get to hydration much. I did we, I forget about this. Yeah, quite a bit, a little bit. Um, yeah, a little bit. So the idea with hydration is to know the micronutrients in your body and being in balance with them. Drinking water does not hydrate you. It is healthy for you, very healthy for you, and every biological system in your body needs water to operate. However, it does not hydrate you. But take, so just to, jump, it, just to jump in a little bit on nutrition and hydration, I do know a couple of things. Eating a heavy meal at night does not promote sleep. So eating steak and potatoes and a a huge beer and bread, garlic bread, and finishing that off with a huge bowl of ice cream is probably not your best practice at night. I'm not saying you can't do that every once in a while. I'm just saying that it's probably not the best. Some people say I can drink caffeine all the time. And it doesn't affect your sleep. Good for you. Most people cannot drink caffeine at night. And so stopping, it could actually affect your body up to 14 hours, caffeine. Mm -hmm. So if you find that you're caffeine sensitive, you need to stop drinking caffeine at like 10 o'clock in the morning in order to get a decent night's sleep at night. Um, There are studies that suggest that that eating a small amount now when i say small i mean like small small so 30 grams or less of carbohydrate pure not sugar not mixing in a spoon spoonful of sugar not sneaking some ice cream define define sugar at that point then because um simple refined sugar okay Uh, maybe maybe take a couple of 
mango fruit, dried mangoes, uh, just like maybe one of a mango leather that you got from, you know, a, a health a section of the grocery store or something small, maybe a, a fig, something that has mm -hmm. about 30, 30 grams of carbohydrates, pure whole food. Um, is said to Which promote uh, to promote it's going, sleep. It's going to be sugar, is what I'm saying, but not but, candy. Yeah, bread. not just simple refined sugar can help um, help promote uh, sleep at night. Going back to sleep since this is since sleep is your anchor point. I keep going back to sleep. As I, I think I it, I think it, I think mental resiliency all goes back to rest mm -hmm. and sleep. You can rest without sleep. However, it's not the most optimal. Right. And so ha the, the, your, your best chance of mental resiliency is to give your mind breaks. Right. And rest and stillness and quiet and rejuvenation. And so the more we're rejuvenating our mind, the better. Um, you should feel good after you eat. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what we're saying right now is that when you take in food, if you feel gross after you eat, you probably ate the wrong thing. Anyways, moving on. Social connection. We are, that is the next idea for mental health and mental resiliency is that we need people in our life. We need relationships. And the healthier that they are, the healthier our mental state will be and the greatest potential that we have for mental resiliency. Um, we, off, we often talk about the... Uh, the African-American culture in the South, especially African-American women, um, are some of the most mentally resilient people out there, no matter their diet. And we would say that they were not the healthiest in their diet. But no matter, no matter what, their longevity is huge because of their social ties. Their mental resiliency is huge and all the trauma that they've gone through is their mental resiliency is still huge because of their strong social connections and social structures. Any thought on that or should I move on? That's good. Uh, one way to really change your mind for the better and to give you a better outlook in life is to practice gratitude, to say thank you, to at the end of the day, and we talked about CBT, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, but a, a really big aspect of CBT is to be is to find things that you're grateful for and to even keep a log of those um, and try to fill your book full of things that you're grateful for. That gratitude and practicing gratitude um, can, train, can change your psyche for the better. And it's one of the most impactful things that you can do. Um, uh, finding the good in things instead of looking for holes all the time is another way of saying that that we're trying to find what's good and we point it out then we will be a happier more resilient person at that point any more thoughts that's good keep going okay yeah, keep going. so the next mm -hmm. two ideas that I have into moving on uh, come from specifically from Andrew Huberman that he uh a ophthalmologist and neurobiologist that we talked to earlier sunlight and viewing sunlight in our eyes unfiltered 
especially in the morning, has the effect of raising our mental resiliency. Raise our dopamine levels, wakes us up, makes us more alert, more mindful, um, starts our day. And so having that sunlight come into your eyes, unfiltered, in the morning time, that probably means you're outside as well, which is awesome. But that is a big aspect in mental resiliency that he finds. Hmm. Keep going? Yeah, it's good. Okay. Um, the last thing from Amateur Huberman is having deliberate decompression. So having a having a a backup plan basically for your life, and the two things that he talks about having uh, to, ways to reduce stress, to reduce anxiety, and when you're in those moments, to have um, to have a plan of how to how to treat yourself when you're in those. And so when you see yourself get triggered, you have the ability to enact these plans in order to be more resilient. Um, he talks about the parasympathetic sigh, just sighing, like <sighs> focuses on your breathing, focuses on putting you back into space. Um, focusing on your breathing is huge, especially in mindfulness. And then he also talks about it's mindfulness, but it's non-sleeping rest. You can look that up later. I don't need to go into that one. And then the last thing I want to talk about tonight is Wim Hof's idea of breathing and cold exposure. Uh, this comes from a scholarly article that I, I looked up, and I can post it in the show notes later on. But it quotes saying, Exposure to cold is known to activate the sympathetic nervous system and increase blood level of the beta endorphin and neuroadrenaline noradrenaline and to increase synaptic release of noradrenaline in the brain and as well additionally due to the high density of cold receptors in the skin a cold shower is expected to send overwhelming amount of electrical impulses from peripheral nerves ending to the brain which could result in an antidepressive effect so cold showers in the morning time could produce could produce a antidepressive effect it could give you a boost of dopamine so cold showers cold plunges and breathing please look that up before you do it talk to your doctor before it there are more negative consequences of cold exposure than there are positive and so make sure that you're in a healthy place before you do that please um, there are it's it's relatively easy to get into and it's free for most people to take cold showers. It's cheaper than a hot shower. And so the idea is that it's accessible to everyone. Um, yet, you need to be in a healthier space physically in order to do that because it can cause arrhythmia and uh, stroke, heart attack if you don't um, do it right. Are you going to give us the list of caveats like a medication does? That's all Take I got. Take this medication for this, but know you're at the risk of doing all this. Or yeah, it's like when this. you when you look up cold exposure, there's a lot of stuff out there. Mm -hmm. And it's not necessarily scientific. It's more nuanced. 
Um, there's a New York Ar- New York Times article published last year, last February, actually a year ago, that said cold exposure is cool. However, there needs to be more scientific research done. Yes. And so, um, so you look at this again. I was just going to say you have nine principles to look over that are not the cure for mental illness. Let me just be really Correct. clear on these things. These are not cures of mental illness. This just gives a best chance of mental resiliency yeah. that we ha- can build our mental <laughs> resiliency. Yeah, And I, I definitely focused on the more of their best chance of mental resilience because curing mental illness, I believe, is done with a licensed counselor, therapist, um, doctor that can see you, prescribe you, and work through issues of trauma in your life. Um, that is not, you can't cure your mental illness through taking cold showers. Right. And so right. that is just giving you the best chance to set your brain up to change. Mm-hmm. Great. There's a couple of ideas that I just want to leave everyone with really short. Number one, if you perceive, think, or feel like you are struggling with even the risk or the preliminary environment of mental illness, we want you to see a licensed professional counselor. If you are at risk of of any kind of physical um, ailment or physical um, disease, just know that that could be one of those risk factors that we want you to see, even if you're enduring something like cancer treatment, diabetes, heart treatment, or any kind of physical uh, ailment to see a licensed professional counselor to help you through those times. If you're under stress, if you feel or perceive that you have um, maybe some uncontrolled anxiety, anything like that, a licensed professional counselor. There's different types of counseling where there's DBT, CBT, there's different forms of talking therapy, uh, which which is cognitive behavioral therapy. Uh, Those are all practiced by licensed professional uh, counselors. But I'm going to end with this. I'm going to put this in the show notes. If you know of anyone that is suffering from depression, anxiety, panic attack, um, disorder, or if they're going through a season of depression that hasn't been diagnosed, that you perceive someone or yourself and you are at risk of suicide, I want to give you this number. Call 988. 988 is the Suicide and Crisis Hotline that is a nationwide service. You don't have to call it if you're afraid to call it. You can text it, 988. If you know anybody that is struggling with suicidal tendencies, ideation, which are thinking about ways to commit suicide, you've ever heard somebody talk this way, 988 is the number. We're serious about this topic. We're Christian church leaders 
that desire to change this narrative and image and stigma of mental illness. And so as leaders in faith community, we want you to seek professional help. We want you to seek licensed professional help. And if you are really struggling and you need somebody right now, 988 is your number, the crisis, suicide crisis hotline. So with that, that's in our show notes. That's going to be the last show note. So that shows up on our social media channels. So with that, we are so thankful that you joined us tonight. Thank you, Sharia, for your work. Thank you, Jake, for your work. I appreciate each one of you. And with that, good night, everybody. And thanks for joining us.